After marking song number 170, we will spend a few moments looking into the Word of God this evening. And as we do that, we might again notice that our continuing study on the Sunday night portions has to do with the fourth gospel account in the New Testament, the book, in fact, of John. As we began that series of studies last Lord's Day evening, we had, in fact, seen some of the reasons as to why that would be a noble and worthwhile study, not only partnering with our Bible bowlers as they study the book of John, but also to appreciate in that overview and introductory lesson the great themes set forth in this book that remind us of the everlasting character of the Son of God and of the life that he has in store for those faithful and obedient unto him. He did say, didn't he, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man cometh unto the Father, but or except by me. Verse number 6 of John 14. As you might notice somewhat quickly on that opening slide, the introductory one for this evening, we had an interest as we looked through the chapters to appreciate that in order to arrive at chapter 21 by the time of the Bible Bowl, we'll be moving somewhat at a quick pace. But as we cover the material each Sunday evening, it's our hope that we can hit some of the high points and to appreciate the lessons that our youngsters are learning and that you and I can benefit from as well. I might do well to remind you that the King James translation is not the one from which the questions are taken at, at the actual Bible Bowl participation. It is a new King James rendition or version, and so some of the quotations may look a little bit unusual if you're uh, tracking or following along in the King James translation, so just to be aware of that distinction as, uh, as you might see it from time to time in the lesson and in those that follow. Tonight our consideration will take us from John 1 verse 19 to John chapter 2 verse number 12. As chapter 1 has some 51 verses within it, that seemed a nice division in terms of the book. And so as we look at that this evening, we will highlight three major ideas. And let's proceed to look at them in order, if, if we might, at this point. First of all, beginning in John 1 verse 19 and continuing through verse 34, we have an especial focus and a rather noted emphasis upon John the Immerser. John the Baptist, and not only the things that he taught, but also the way in which his disciples were directed to appreciate the Master himself. Let's revisit beginning at verse 19 of chapter 1 and see some of the marvelous wonders in the times and life of John the Baptist. Wasn't it true that this gentleman, this man named John, was a rather direct and rugged and somewhat bold individual? In fact, he directly came before very many of his day and pointed directly to the truth. He was rather unapologetic and certainly uncompromising in the character of the truth. One can even see that in a way concerning the type person that he gave appearance to to others. After all, in terms of his food, wasn't it locusts and wild honey that he ate? And in terms of his garment, wasn't it that camel's hair and a, uh, certainly a leather girdle as well? Those, of course, were not the typical kinds of raiment in that day and time. He lived, of course, somewhat distant from the cities, but his preaching garnered a rather wide audience, didn't it? Many came to him and, in fact, submitted even to the baptism which he preached. It would be entirely fair to notice the way in which John presents this individual. You might notice in verse 19 that they, there were those, namely Jews, who began to question his identity. Who is this John? 
what is the nature of this person and how does he fit into the expectation that the Old Testament might have? And thus, they sent Levites and priests to ask him, Who are you? It is a great commendation and compliment to John. Again, he was rather forthright in telling them, I am not the Christ. In fact, when they continued to ask, Are you Elijah? Are you that prophet? In every instance, he affirmed, No, I am not. He did not claim to be a resurrected Elijah. He did not assert himself to be the prophet foretold and prophesied in the Old Testament. In fact, as he labeled himself, borrowing from the description of the inspired apostle John in John 1 verse 7, John the Baptist was merely that person who was a witness to the light, L-I-G-H-T, where that's a capital L. And we remember that from their lesson last Sunday evening to be Jesus. But isn't it amazing to notice the language that he himself used describing himself in John chapter 1? Note the way in which he describes himself with me, if you would. If I might take the liberty of reading a couple of verses. In John chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. As surely as John again answered the question of those interested in his identity, he there quoted from the book of Isaiah of the Old Testament. And so we might notice a very interesting and rather powerful conclusion. The Old Testament quite often foretold the nature of Jesus foretelling not only the person but his work, it is an amazing feature that the Old Testament also prophesied of his forerunner. It directly foreshadowed the coming of John by stating not only the kind of work that he would do, but to some extent the manner in which he would do it. In Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 1, is the place from which John quoted, where it made reference to the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the ways or paths of the Lord. The time and place in which John labored was to prepare the way for Israel to accept this Jesus, this one who was in fact their Messiah, and hence a powerful testimony of John is the very description before us here. And not only that, in Malachi chapter 3, the very last book in the Old Testament, one more time, the four of the Old Testament gave an especial focus on the work of the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist. With regard to both of those passages to which I've referred, that leads us to notice particularly what some of the works were in which John engaged. The text goes on to tell us in this very chapter that he was baptizing in the Jordan near Beth Abara. That is a place that you might take note is actually another name for a little village known as Bethany, but that is not the same Bethany that we will encounter in chapter 12 later in this book. That Bethany, which is where Lazarus and Martha and Mary resided, was in fact on the western side of the Jordan River. This, this particular Bethany or Beth Abara was in fact on the eastern side of the Jordan. And to this point, we really do not know exactly where this little village was, but it wasn't the same as the Bethany that was the hometown of, of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. As John baptized, 
we might well notice that he had authority in which to do that, for it was expected of those of that day that were Jewish to submit to his baptism. We learn that in Luke 7, verses 29 and 30. As we appreciate then the baptism and the role that would play in bringing or, or in fact stating the forerunner character of John, it of course was a somewhat a thinking that points us to the baptism that Jesus would command. Now those baptisms were not in all ways the same. The major difference of course being they were administered by different authorities. Jesus' baptism was absolutely based upon himself as the Son of God. And when we baptize today, it is into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was not so founded. It was in fact based upon his nature, not that of Christ, for at that point Christ hadn't died yet. That's the reason we can see in Acts 19 that there was a need for rebaptism of some who knew only the baptism of John because the Holy Spirit was not given in light of that baptism. The remarkable feature then that this chapter has in store for us still was the realization of verse number 28. In that verse, as we notice John's baptism, these things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The mission again to denote for Israel the fact that the Messiah was about to be here. John was his forerunner the voice of one crying in the wilderness. As one looks a bit further as well, in verse number 29, we notice one of the most memorable of John's expressions. On one particular occasion, as Jesus was walking, John, in seeing him in light of a couple of the disciples that were with him, simply affirmed, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. A very beautiful and touching pronouncement, recognizing the greatness of the one who was now before John, for John did not desire the attention for himself. He himself, in fact, would say, I'm not worthy to stoop down and to loosen his shoes latchet. In addition to noting I'm not the Christ, he said, I'm unworthy, really, even to stoop to that point. He directed all the glory and all the proper homage to the Christ, not to himself. In fact, again, he, namely that Christ, is the Lamb of God. In one simple reference, we find a whole host of Old Testament history that's brought to bear to you and me, remembering that it was those lambs in the Old Testament that were so often slaughtered as representative of the price and symbolic of that of the nature of sin. Here, the Lamb of God, the true Lamb, the one again referenced later in the Revelation, written by the same person, of course, John the Apostle, reminding us of the great role that Christ was as the Lamb. As you can see in verse 36, John made the same statement again, Behold the Lamb of God. May we never forget that this Christ, though indeed the Lion of the tribe of Judah, was in fact the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. It was to John that some inspired information was delivered. Namely that the very one on whom he saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove would be the very one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. John in fact did see as a dove the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus and thus he knew certainly and absolutely that this was the one who had the opportunity and the power to baptize in the Holy Spirit. And to this day, he is the only one who ever had that capability 
despite the teaching of some in our day, there is no baptism of the Holy Spirit in our current age. It ended in the 10th chapter of Acts. Only the two occasions in the 2nd and 10th chapters of that book. And only Christ had the authority. And only the Christ had the power to perform that baptism. No human has ever had it. And thus might we notice the fallacy in some of the false teachings that we might appreciate, at least in the hearing of some today. As we draw near the conclusion of that opening slide, you might notice that I entitled it The Testimony of John or John's Testimony. I took that from not only verse number 34, but also verse number 19. Let's read those two as a set of bookends, and I think that we'll see the reason for that entitlement. Verse number 19 begins, Now this is the testimony of John. What then is John's testimony? Verse 34, And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. John's principal work, the thing that fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies concerning him were the testimony he made of Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus as the Christ. And oh, how well he did that job. Oh, how well he performed the announcement to the world that this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. With the passing of verse number 34, it brings us to the next segment or section in our lesson this evening. And to that, let's look at verses 35 through 51, closing chapter number 1 in our study. This one I've entitled Jesus and His Disciples. On one particular occasion, this was the day following, in fact, those earlier statements that we've made, John again saw Jesus walking by, and in seeing him, it was John who said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples that were there with John were so overtaken and enamored by the things that John said, they proceeded to follow Jesus. Might we notice, Jesus did not, uh, John did not, in fact, urge them to come back and follow him. He didn't, in fact, reprimand or rebuke them for that. He was happy to, in fact, direct them to the Christ. Today, the greatest thing you and I can do for any person is direct them to the Christ. The glory doesn't reside in you or in me. It doesn't reside in a building. It doesn't reside in some book other than the Holy Scriptures. The authority vested in the things of Christianity are invested in the Christ. Isn't it his name that we wear, hopefully with pride and with dignity, appreciating that as Christians we are bound by the blood of Christ not only to one another, but to the very one who shed that blood for us. The understanding, then beginning in verse number 35 of chapter 1, reminds us that as John directed attention to the Master, that conversation took a rather interesting turn. For as those disciples followed Jesus, they had an interesting conversation with him. Would you notice a few of the questions? In verse number 38, Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, What do you seek? They said, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? As Jesus understood and appreciated them following him, he in fact proceeded to ask them, verse 38, what do you seek? You might notice in verse number 39, after they had said, where are you staying? Jesus said, come and see. That still is one of the simplest and noblest of invitations, isn't it? Come and see, the Lord said. 
He had nothing to hide. He had nothing, in fact, to direct them or to turn them to greater or deeper thoughts. You come and let the evidence speak for itself. And today, isn't it still that same way? Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in hearts, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A text sometimes called the great invitation of Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28. As the Lord thus invited them to come and see, isn't it interesting and somewhat intriguing that the next verse tells us, or verse number 39, they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. We are given the identity of one of those two that had been followers of John who, went, who came to be followers of Jesus that day. His name was Andrew. And as the chapter proceeds onward, we learn interestingly that this one had a brother and his name was Simon Peter. As we see then the nature of the first thing that Andrew did, he went and found his brother and brought him to Jesus. And you might note some of the interesting comments that Andrew made. I'd like to read them again based upon that same chapter. In verse number 40 and 41, verse 41 states it ever so clearly. We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. That word Messiah is a very interesting term. It is actually a Hebrew word that means the anointed one. Notice that in the Greek, the same word is simply written the Christ. So the word Messiah and the word Christ really refer and mean the same thing. One of them merely is Greek, the other is Hebrew. Jesus indeed is the Messiah. And Andrew, with a great excitement, went and found Peter, brought him and affirmed, we found the one that the Old Testament spoke of and that the Old Testament prophesied of. Inasmuch as he had found him, we might notice how that little section concludes. For Jesus proceeded to address Simon Peter and surnamed or gave him the name Cephas, which means a stone. And oh, what a great role this stone would have in the promulgation of the gospel. For later in Matthew 16, who was it that in fact said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God? It was Peter. And who was it that Jesus said, I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It was Peter. And who was it on the day of Pentecost who proclaimed with resounding power the first gospel sermon? The one recorded is Peter's. And who was it that was called and spoke to the household of Cornelius and ushered in the families of the Gentiles into the church. It was Peter. What a great influence this one was to have. And did he not write two of the books of the New Testament, First and Second Peter, those that bear his name? As we contemplate the greatness of this one that Jesus was now discussing with, we'll find over and again his appearance as a noble individual in the early days of the church as recorded in the New Testament. As we also notice in this same chapter, Jesus also called Philip. This particular notice is found in verses 43 and following. There was a gentleman named Philip, and the Lord, in fact, invited or called him to come and follow him. We notice in verses 43 and 44, Philip was of a city called Bethsaida. In fact, the same city that both Peter and Andrew were from. 
So that's an interesting observation that this city that was situated on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee was in fact the hometown or the home place of these three noted individuals, both Peter and Andrew and Philip. With those kind of comments made for us here concerning the Lord's work in terms of Bethsaida and the calling of Philip, notice too how excited Philip was when he heard the Lord's invitation of Hingham. In fact, we notice in verse number 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We notice that Philip too couldn't contain the information and the excitement. He went and found another person, namely Nathanael, and shared with him the overwhelming majesty of what he had just heard. How do you and I respond in terms of the treasure of the gospel that we have? Are we as excited to seek and to share? Are we as overwhelmed with excitement and interest to make certain that others also are able to hear that message? We have seen now two instances, Andrew on the one hand and now Philip on another, who seemingly couldn't wait to share the news of who it was that they had found, this Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. With verse number 45 before us, might we continue to notice that Nathaniel is a very interesting character and one that might well be an interesting study in his own right. At the outset, when we first encounter Nathaniel, though Philip had been so excited to, in fact, call him, Nathaniel was rather skeptical, wasn't he? Let's note especially his language in verse 46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel's first response to the statement made by Philip was, can there anything good come out of Nazareth? He wasn't convinced about the worthiness, the nobility of the one that, Nathaniel, that Philip was speaking of. But isn't it interesting that the same kind of language appears again that we've seen before? Recall that Jesus said, come and see, and notice what Philip said, verse 46. Philip said to him, come and see. The evidence will speak for itself. And isn't it still that way in the Holy Scriptures? If a person with an open mind will simply allow the Bible to speak for itself, laying aside the biases and the prejudices and the preconceived notions, that person will in truth come to understand, come and see the truth that God has revealed. As we notice this response, I wonder when Nathaniel did go and see, what did he come to appreciate then? Did his skepticism turn into faith? Did his skepticism by way of evidence turn into being a noble complimentary one of Jesus? Let's read the verses and see. In verse 47 it reads, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile or in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Isn't it amazing? This one who before had been so skeptical, who in fact had said, Behold, in regard to Nazareth, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now he openly with his own mouth said, You, Jesus, are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. 
we thus ought to realize that change can take place in the hearts of individuals, can't it? This purser that was so uncertain, so questioning, and so skeptical now, with his own mouth, affirms the deity of Jesus, the divinity of him, and in fact, in the verses that follow, is one who apparently was able to have at least some influence over the nature of bringing others, yet still, to Jesus of Nazareth. I might ask you to notice that remarkable change then that took place in Nathaniel can also take place in human beings today. For wasn't it said in Acts 17, 6 that these who have turned the world upside down have come here also on that second missionary journey? The world had been turned upside down by the preaching of the gospel. And they in Thessalonica and in Apollonia and in the other places therein referenced were not the same places that they had been before the gospel came. Today, can we not also then appreciate from Colossians 3, verses 1 to 3, that that same change occurs over and over again when individuals believe and obey the gospel. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, not set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. When one's attention and one's direction is changed from things here to things there, it makes an overwhelming and complete distinction in terms of what life now is to what it once was. That kind of change had taken place in Nathaniel. He had had an interaction with the Master. And today, when individuals interact obediently with the Master, that same kind of change will take place. The marvelous wonder of this set of verses then that closes chapter number 1 reminds us that this was not the occasion on which the Lord selected his apostles. This was very early on in the gospel accounts. In fact, it would be several months from now before he will actually call the twelve. This incident then with Nathaniel, with Philip, with in fact Andrew coming to him, this was not when the Lord called the apostles. This was when disciples began to follow him, when they began to have an ear for his message and were overwhelmed by the power of his miracles and the other things he was about to do. When we come to Luke 6, verses 12 and following there, oh, after a long night of prayer, he will call his disciples to him, and from them he will select the apostles. So might we not think that these events in John 1 were the selection of the apostles? It was not. These were disciples that began to have an interest in his message and who proceeded to follow him with vigor, with ardor, and with great interest. But that does bring us to chapter number 2 of the book of John. And in the opening 12 verses of this chapter, we encounter the first of the Lord's miracles recorded in the sacred scriptures. I've entitled this particular section, Jesus' First Miracle, John chapter 2 verse 1 through verse 12 of that same chapter. John wastes no time as he defines for us the setting. There was a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. This little village was situated some eight miles northeast of Nazareth. And since Nazareth was the hometown, if you please, of Jesus, that's where he grew up, this place was not all that far distant from his own hometown. We are told later in this same book that this was the home place of Nathaniel that very person that we just now discussed in chapter 1. We'll not see that in terms of its text until John 21, verses 1 and 2. But as we appreciate this little place of Cana, it is significant as to who was there. 
Mary, the Lord's mother, was there at this wedding feast. And also Jesus and his disciples were there. And immediately in one rather innocent and small statement, we have a tremendous compliment to the nature of marriage. The Son of God, in fact, complimented this marriage by adorning it with his presence. Here was the Son of God present on the occasion of this marriage. We aren't given the name of the bride or the groom, but we do know that the Lord was there. That reminds us of the teaching of Hebrews 13:4, doesn't it, about the loveliness of marriage that it's set forth in the Word of God. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Might we ever thus hold high the banner of marriage as God has defined it, not how often as man abuses it, twists it, and turns it, but as the Bible and the Holy Scripture set it forward, it's a beautiful thing to appreciate that union that takes place between a man and a woman, a husband and his wife, so much so that they are described as one flesh on three different occasions in the Holy Bible. Once in Genesis 2, once in Ephesians 5, and once in Matthew 19. That unity that is set forth in marriage helps us appreciate then that the description of it in Ephesians 5 is one that's so profound that it is used to help us understand the nature of Jesus to his church. But as we notice the Lord and his disciples present at this marriage feast, we notice that Mary not only was there, but she seemed to have a role to play in helping make certain that it ran smoothly, which makes us think that maybe she was a friend of the groom or at least a, a, an acquaintance of them, so much so that we began to notice in verse 3 she came to Jesus and gave him some information. They are out of wine. They, in fact, had run out of this liquid substance, this beverage, this wine, and as we've studied it earlier, we have reached the conclusion this was non-alcoholic in its character. 150 gallons approximately of this are made. And as we appreciate that fact, we thus can conclude that if this was alcoholic in any way, then this was such that it would have made those present not only a little bit drunken, but for some of them extensively so. And since the Lord never committed any sin, Hebrews Chapter 4, verse 15. And since associating and encouraging sin is sin, Romans 1, verses 30 to 32, then we know this could not have been of that alcoholic variety. And the firmness of that conclusion helps us see that in the verses before us, we see an interesting conversation that begins to take place. For upon noting that they had run out of wine, Mary had a response to the servants. Would you please note with me the language, the order, if you will, the command that she gives them? In John chapter 2, verse number 5, His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Whatever he says to you, do it. Mary did not know what Jesus was going to give them in terms of instruction. She didn't know exactly the way in which he would approach them or what he might do to remedy the shortcoming of the wine. But she did give this order, whatever he says to you, do it. I would submit that that is a rather noble motto and slogan for each of us still today, isn't it? Whatever he says to you, do it. It's not our job to question 
It's not our job to be presumptuous, to supersede His will with our preferences, to do that which we think is more convenient, or that which we think is more entertaining, or that which we even think is better. What we think is better is irrelevant. It's immaterial. It is of no value, for our job is to simply do what He has said. For isn't that still what faith is ultimately? To appreciate the thoroughness and all that he has revealed and to simply do what he has said. No wonder faith so often is identified in Hebrews 11 in language like that. Did Noah understand the fullness of all asked of him and commanded of him? Probably not. But this is what is said of him. Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. He simply did what God said for him to do. And what about Moses? Did he understand all the reasons for every law that he gave? And over 600 of them he gave to Israel. Not just the Ten Commandments. But yet this was said of him, Thus did Moses according to all that God commanded him. Exodus 40 verse 16. And it is no different today. When you and I walk by faith, we will do simply what he has commanded. Thus... As that information was relayed by Mary to those servants, might we notice in the verses that follow, Jesus did proceed to remedy the shortcoming, and he did so in the following way. There were six water pots that were present on the occasion, and the text informs us they were used for the purification of the Jews. We know that the Jews often required themselves to wash of hands and wash of plates and things for the process of purification. That seems to be the reason for these water pots and the water that was contained in them. The Lord gave the order, fill them to the brim, all six of them. And we're told furthermore that each one held between 20 and 30 gallons. That's how we reached the previous number of about 150 if you take 25, the average of 20 and 30, and multiply that by 6, that totals 150 gallons of water filled the totality of these six water pots. And as they were filled with water, we notice that then Jesus gave instruction to take some of it, the liquid that was contained in it, and bear it to those present. In particular, the master. The master was an individual responsible for the purposes of the feast itself in terms of its smoothness. This person was an organizer, making sure there was enough food, enough beverage, all the guests were happy and satisfied, all the things were in place. We can think of it somewhat like a wedding planner today. That was the person that was the governor or the master of the feast. As impressed as the master of the feast was, we can see that impressiveness in the fact he then proceeded to gain the attention of the actual groom himself. Let's note the wording that the master had for the groom. In verse 9 and 10 it reads, When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This person, this master of the feast, in commenting to the bridegroom, the very one who was, of course, getting married, he said to him, The custom is to, in fact, set forth the better wine at a different time than you have. 
You have saved it to last. You now have set forth not that which is inferior, but that which is the best, the good. Notice the impressiveness of what the Lord did. He took that water and made from that, perhaps it would seem, the best of wine. And I use that to help us teach a bit of a lesson about the greatness of the glory of Christ. The fact that he is the master of quality. Isn't it true that the Lord doesn't do anything just halfway or shoddy? The Lord does everything picture perfect. In his own life, that's the way he lived. He did everything in a way that was appropriate, perfect, and right. And his church in its design is flawless. It is absolutely faultless. Humankind can mess it up and make poor decisions and engage in ways that are rather insulting and vile, but by its design, it is blemishless. It's untainted and it's perfect, Ephesians 5.27. You see, the Lord is the master of quality. Was it not said of him in Mark 7.37, He doeth all things well. In every regard, Jesus and the performance of that which was his work upon earth did it perfectly, flawlessly. And when the time came that they pierced his side there at Calvary, notice right before he died he said, It is finished. That perfect work of salvation was completed. The work of the cross was done, and there was nothing wrong at all in God's infinite plan of salvation with respect to it. The Lord carried it out ideally and perfectly. As you might see near the close of those remarks on that page, so many wonderful comments might well be made about the effect that Jesus can have upon your life and upon mine in terms of the quality that he brings. The life that is authored by Christ is a life of joy and a life of happiness, isn't it? For it's still true that he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Isn't it true that that life authored by the Christ is a life of both understanding and peace? For isn't it true that we read in John 14, 27, My peace I leave with you. The Lord didn't just have the peace for himself. He wished all of those who would be his followers to know of that peace, that peace that passes all understanding, Philippians 4, verse 7. And finally, we might notice it's a life of courage and confidence, not tainted with unbelief, not in fact described by that which is weak or timid, but a life then described in the language of Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And maybe finally, a life of abundance. We read in this very same book, and we'll encounter the text in due course, but Jesus said, I came that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. John chapter 10, verse 10. Tonight, as we've looked at these closing thoughts to chapter 1, and the opening remarks to chapter 2, we've reached a point of being able to summarize our continuing study of John with three highlighted ideas one of which was the testimony of John, the fact that he testified that Jesus is the Son of God. And that fact is still the bedrock of the church, isn't it? For the later, after Peter had said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, that was the basis upon which Jesus said the rock that he would build his church. And today, when an individual just prior to baptism, they make the confession, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the same testimony that John revealed. 
In the second place, we notice that interaction between Jesus and his disciples in which they came to appreciate his greatness. The followers of John came to follow Jesus. And as they did so, these, some of them later, would be selected as his apostles. And then finally, we've also noticed this evening the Lord's first miracle. There would be many that would follow, but the purpose of this one and the others was to, in fact, encourage belief in the disciples. And that was the title of the lesson tonight, Belief of the Disciples. Tonight, do you believe with all your heart that Jesus is a Son of God? If so, thanks be unto God for that avenue of belief. And may you in faith have previously acted upon it to become a Christian. That, of course, involved your belief, your repentance, your confession, your baptism. And may you continue to walk faithfully with that slogan upon your lips that Jesus is a Son of God. If you have begun that walk in life but have not been faithful to it, Maybe like these that we've noticed tonight, you again need to hear Jesus say, Come and see. Remember that walk of life you enjoyed in faithful harmony with Jesus. Do you miss it? Would you like to come back to that walkway of love and power and fortitude and courage? If so, that could happen tonight. There's a crowd of people desiring to pray on your behalf for your again faithful position at the sight of God. If we could help you tonight to pray on your behalf for you and with you, or if we could assist in your baptism, don't hesitate or delay. Don't put that off. It's too important. But would you not come while together we stand and while we sing?